The material discussed and presented in this podcast is for general information only and any reliance on such material is done at your own risk. This podcast should not be considered professional advice. Reference to any information, product, process, service, or organization does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by pros. Views expressed by guests are their own, and their appearance on the podcast does not imply an endorsement by pros of them or any entity they represent. Views expressed by pros employees are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views, standards, or policies of pros or any of its directors, officers, employees, or shareholders. Hey everybody, welcome to Interface, the podcast where we connect technology and culture through conversation. My name is Sierra Barnes. I am one of your co-hosts. My other co-hosts are Maddie Cakes, Matthew, and Jenny Plummer. And Interface is brought to you by Empower at Pros. Empower is an employee resource group that is dedicated to attracting, retaining, and developing Black talent at Pros. And Pros helps people and companies outperform by enabling better selling in the digital space. For my first round, that was good. <laughs> and today we have with us Ms. Sherelle Francis. And I am a terrible host because I did not look up what your official title is. Hello, Sherelle. I am the manager of programs for our um, Center of Excellence, no, normally known as a project management office, but uh, we service every business unit for our organization. So it's considered the Center of Excellence. Beautiful. And you are working for? Insight, the purple pinkish hashtag better known as the business to business premier partner for all of your tech companies in the world, literally. We are the number one partner. Okay, beautiful. Well, we like to start off each episode with our guests giving us a bit of their origin story, kind of what was your journey to where you are today? Well, first, thank you all for having me. Um, this is exciting. Uh, I think it's uncanny. My story is hilarious. I started out uh, in 1998 in the basement of Seton Hall University at the computer lab. Back then we had Pell Grant. I don't even know if they have them anymore. And I was on a work study and I was ear hustling and they were like, we need two more people. And I was like, yeah, I need that job. Um, I have to make up for lunch and stuff. And literally that's how I started in IT. And I was at Seton Hall uh, pre-law. So I was taking all history classes. My minor was Asian studies. I learned um, how to speak and write Mandarin Chinese. And I was focused on going to law school. But I always had this little inkling um, for figuring things out. And um, ironically, working in the computer lab, I did not like reading instructions and I did not like answering the phone for support. So it just was not a good fit. <laughs> so the chair of the department, she was like, you don't really like giving the instructions over the phone, but you're really good in the broader sense. So that's how my, um, if you will, IT career started. And so she referred me to a law firm who needed um, some IT and filing clerk support. And so um, I called my grandmother and I was like, I'm going to have to walk there because I was 17, 16 when I graduated from high school. So I couldn't even take my car with me on campus. And she was like, oh, you can do it. And the irony is my grandmother had a 37 year career as a systems analyst, um, Frigidaire, formerly White Westinghouse. And she was like, I went through harder times. You can do it. So long story short, that is how my career started. I stayed in all these different odd jobs of somehow either file clerk or coordinating but what I always knew instinctively was I enjoyed putting complex situations together strategically. And so it worked out for me um, in the IT arena. And at that time, I wasn't thinking about project management, but I was always doing volunteer work um, for community organizations, United Way, um, a couple of uh, religious organizations, and then the Rucker Soup Kitchen. And I always ended up being the person who was in front of the computer, either creating a database or creating a budget, creating a plan. 
and in the project management world, you know, the triangle, people, time, and resources, right? That's what we're always managing. And so it became a very, very natural uh, fit for me. And so that, that journey led me um, to defy law school after a couple of major courses. And I was like, oh, I think I'm pretty good at this. And a friend called, was like, we need some help at Johnson Johnson. Being from New Brunswick, New Jersey, I was like, oh, we all work there. Best opportunity ever. I went as a temp and converted to a full-time employee and uh, was there as like a coordinator. They even have project coordinators there. And then they moved that whole department and then went back to working for the city of New Brunswick for a recruitment and retention program for children at risk and um, in marginalized income. And where'd I end up? Back in front of the computer. MS Access, creating databases, figuring out um, the summer recruitment program and who was going where and how many kids were being hired from Great Adventure. But I always ended back up in that arena. And I was like, okay, this is my passion. This is what drives me. And even in non-work-related uh, areas, I ended up managing or leading a project in some sort. So I knew instinctively that's what was really the fit. I love that. So I know that you've been with Insight for a good amount of time. How how long have you been with Insight and what has been your your journey at Insight? Oh, I've been there seven years and we always laugh because they always say it's been longer. I've been around them for 15 because we at Johnson Johnson and MetLife, when I was in the PMO at those locations, um, they were our premier partner. So I used to run the data center, what we call back then channels, those teams, the project interests. And at Johnson Johnson, I was in the supply chain. We would do all of our data center, all of our infrastructure, all of our supplies were coming through Insight. You know, odds and ends from a couple of others, but the lion's share was always through Insight. So there were teammates that I have worked with for years and some of the directors from J&J ended up at Insight. So I've technically been there going on eight years, um, but I've been around Insight for nearly 14 years. Oh, wow. um, my journey there, I, I came in um, after having my daughter, Zoe. Uh, she's now nine. And I had stepped away from work for about two months. And we ended up in Austin for my husband's job. And a friend of mine was like, hey, we need help at Dell. Dell Children's Medical Center, um, they were really constrained um, with building out the IC unit. And I couldn't take in my mind having an assignment for NICU, like babies are gonna be tied to these machines and this infrastructure. And I was like, all right, fine, took it. And who would I end up with? Working in the basement with the whole Insight team. And so it came like full circle. So their director was like, well, finally we get you. So his name is Mike Johnson, we started laughing. And I was like, I'm here on project, I can't. And we wrapped up that project, Dell went through some changes and I was like, okay, maybe this is a good time. And I was very sick, took the interview from the hospital bed and secured that role. And so if I would tell anyone anything is we really secure in who you are and what you can deliver because no one knew at that time like I was in a hospital bed interviewing but um you know resilience is a part of the journey and I knew like I was going to get better so let me just interview and when they give me my start date it I'll be better and I interviewed in the hospital and started on uh January 2nd at the customer site to uh irate situation and here we are eight years later and I started in Austin and then we relocated to Houston. Uh, we had an office in Houston and the career has just been progressive, but I went in knowing that I always wanted to move forward. So I was a, se a senior project manager and I always wanted to manage portfolios. So if I were talking to any person listening to this and thinking about how they want to grow, when you're in a tech company and it's sales based, you want to know the business. And so my goal was to be able to deliver a project for every offering that we sell. Because I found that a lot of the staff, uh, PMs, had their niche. I only do data center. I only do O365. I don't, 
that was never my situation. I've said for three years, I want to learn everything because technology moves so fast and then really find my niche so that I'm the go-to for a certain. And I accomplished that um, in two and a half years, every single offering I had delivered a project in. And what ended up happening is I just became the, uh, they say the Judy Smith of the PMO. I am the Escalation PM. I've only had four projects in nearly eight years, ever from like initiation to end. I'm usually getting a project that is hell awry, everything's gone wrong, or it's total stakeholder management, like come save the day. And so the fixer, the fixer right? And so I mean, you're really Olivia resilient. Pope of the PMOs. <laughs> that was the joke, like when that show was on, but I have to be honest and say you have to be so careful when you get put into that box, because then you can easily get overutilized and you're exhausted. And so you have it's to stressful. make sure there's a yeah. balance, it's stressful and not to a detriment. And I didn't want to be a jack of all trade and master of none, right? So when there's certain portfolios that came, I would say, well, you know, try so-and-so because she's really, really good. It's like multi-site projects, like, you know, your retail stores and your McDonald's, places that are franchises, those I can do, but they are toilsome. And as my daughter got older and family dynamics changed, I don't want to work overnights and weekends for cutovers. So I had to learn how to be more selective. But the journey at Insight has been really progressive. Uh, I was really, really focused on making sure I knew how to deliver so that when we came into customers during our mergers and acquisitions, we would never have the gap in the PMO that there's a client we can't deliver for because we don't have the skill set. Um, so that was that was a big deal to me. So going back to undergrad, where you were, you said you were pre-law and studied history and Asian studies. Did you end up changing your major, or you just through your experience, you just kind of gravitated towards this career path? Not only did I, I not, I did not change it because I'm obsessed with history. I was there until some of you all remember that the intense fire we had at Seton Hall. Um, that was in um, our freshman building. I was a sophomore at that time. And when I left, I think this is the beauty of my story. I had a $31,000 tuition bill, which only represented one and a half semesters. Wow. I left and I could not return. So one mm -hmm. of the things I never lead in my conversation with is that I did not finish my bachelor's. I'm just now finishing. In May, I will have my bachelor's in organizational oh. development. Mm -hmm. Because what happened over time, I came out, kept working, making more money, making more money, and then everything was about certification. And I went to this PMI meeting, and I'll never forget uh, Keith Davis. He was like so... Projects, nine months. If the project is longer than nine months, it's like it's pretty much it's it's a high high possibility of a fail point. He's like, so you all need to get certified and stay relevant. Mm -hmm. And he did this valuation of your PMP versus a master's, and he and started what is to a show it. that is your project management professional certification. So it's considered the gold standard for project managers, and in government-based world, um, public sector, often you can have your master's, you can meet all the requirements. If you don't have a PMP, you're not even selected. You're not even in the pool because it's a very rigorous, rigorous um, certification. So when he did the evaluation, I was like, oh, okay, because I was so stuck with the fact that I wasn't finishing college, but I was like, I don't want to go to law school. I still love history, but I'm really good in this. What do I do? So I was taking classes here and there, and then I just got laser focused and I was like, every cert that is relevant to the market and has evaluation. And I went from literally overnight finishing my certification to a $60,000 salary increase. I was able to walk into rooms and have an entire different conversation. I walked into Texas with a New York salary and no one even blinked to keep it there. So the opportunities, and then I went my scrum master and mm -hmm. the pro side OCM before it was really, really big. And I was like, this is going to be really big. You guys got to pay for me. 
So one of the things I really leveraged in my workplace was the certification dollars. There's education budget, there's certification. Mm -hmm. Insight, certifications arrive. There's no limit. And I would share with anyone, find out with your company if there's a limit or a bandwidth on your certifications that you can pursue. They covered the boot camp, they covered the classes, they mm-hmm. covered the exam, the renewal, and membership to your local chapter. I was like, okay, so let's leverage this. So by the time I did those four, I was like, do I still need a degree? And I still had this space of like, oh my God, but bachelor's required. And, my, and I started to really learn that's not what really defines my, my true worth and what I bring to the table. Um, it's really about starting and finishing. And I have a total respect for education. My husband has an MBA and pursuing a doctorate. And now I'm finally finishing my bachelor's because I want to get my master's in data analytics. It it really has nothing to do to get my BS. (laughs) It's it's the bigger picture, right? I've always been like, okay, what's next? I'm like, I got to do that Mm -hmm. to get to what's next. I try to tell all the younger, um, aspiring IT, if you're not really sure when you're in college, what you want to do instead of, you know, wasting that money, going in debt and, and getting your education is not a waste of money, but just taking the classes, flunking, going by the wayside, get your certifications because those are constantly relevant to the industry. Um, so that, that is what happened for me. So when I left after the fire at Seton Hall, um, I did not return. One of the, Sherelle and I have been friends for, Oh God, I don't even know how long now. It has to be over 10 years. And one of the beautiful things about her story, when I learned that she had not finished her bachelor's, the having that conversation with her, because I grew up in very much like in the mode of the you finish high school, you finish college, then you go find a job, and you go do this, and you go do this. <clears throat> and to see how successful she had been in this tech world and she's like little known secret i haven't finished my bachelor's but having the conversations to figure out what's really important to get where you need to go and we're not pushing education to the side that is still very important but there's different avenues to get to where it is that that you want to go and i I love that part of your story Jennifer always talks about like bringing different perspectives to like an organization or team. How have you leveraged that history background into your current career? So when you say uh, the history of my education, like you're, you're a history major. Oh God. So that has been, Matthew, that's such a great question. I am so obsessed with history. And so being in a male dominated, often white male dominated a room, I am able uh, to have conversations sometimes that um, are unexpected, right? So if we are in a stakeholder meeting and I am just seeing um, a lot of tension and I'm not seeing compromise, I will pull out a Winston Churchill moment and talk about the war. I will talk about what it looks like to have a plan and have to throw the plan out the window and make a new one, right? I will talk about a systemic construct and what that looks like. I will talk about the women of IBM who were the computers, one of which my grandmother was uh, working down in the basement. So having context about history helps me to really find a medium and be able to leverage that, especially um, in, in rooms that are often male dominated because it changes the temperature because sometimes I notice it's what's not being said that's really the agitator in the room and so I'll reference even um, IBM they were the first company to start diversity task force and be phenomenally successful with it and then AT&T took on that entire um, formula. But then Johnson & Johnson is known for their credo, right? It's part of the Harvard Business Review study. People can purchase the book. If you've ever worked at Johnson Johnson, you know the credo, you live the credo. So having the context and understanding history, it helps sometimes to just like give a little change to 
the tension. I found it most useful in tension in a room, especially when I'm dealing with um, a scope creep or needing <laughs> to have the style revived. Because the question always comes up, how did we get here? And so then I'll reference, you know, gradual conversations and strategic planning. And so often I'll go to a Winston Churchill. Uh, he was known for strategic planning and how to observe the room. So that, that part of history has been very helpful. Um, and it has also helped me to understand a lot of the behavior. Some of it is uh, systemic. Some of the behavior is uh, biased um, unintentionally. And I can see some of the um, dismissive, blatant dismissive demeanors and leadership in rooms. And I'll think back to contextual pieces of history. And I'm like, I, I can see where this really stems from. I mean, being a Jersey girl coming into Texas was just crazy. That you know, that whole team. They were like, so she goes 100 miles an hour. How is this going to work? And it was just like, we'll make it work. <laughs> Yeah, I love that. Um, so tell us a little bit about what your day to day looks looks like. Um, I know going a thousand miles a minute, but if you could, <laughs> if you could break Last that down for us in our audience, pre or post pandemic, I, I, always, I always say that now. <laughs> if someone else asks me that, you know, um, I'm old school about a couple of things. I still have a to do list. Um, my red, black, I mean, you guys are young, but I still have my red, black notebook. Like, I use this in the law firm forever, and I still write. So every day, um, I always check my team's calendar. A big difference is I no longer have my corporate email account on my cell phone, on my iPad. I, I, I really disconnected. I found it to be very unhealthy to start my mornings with what's coming up. Versus being, you know, connected to my world, what's happening around me and my family and taking a minute. So that was a big change for me. So my day now does start different. Uh, I will check my notebook and see my notes from the previous day. And then very typical um, is to check my forecast. It's funny because a lot of people hear you say you're IT, like, can you do my website? Or I'm, I'm like, I spend 80% of my time with forecasting, pipeline, and managing architects and engineers. I need somebody to do my website. <laughs> so I, I check my forecast um, just to see if there have been any, um, any dips um, from the SAP side, our financial side, so I can keep the pipeline really clear in front of me. And I right now have uh, a lot of migrations going on at night. Um, as you all know, because of supply chain. So what we've been really impacted um, is supply chain and hardware coming in late. So right now we have a lot of migrations infrastructure clients doing their migrations in the evening. So I checked to see if the PMs had any escalations. I generally have my technical touch points with all of my team from 10 to 11.30, because no matter what time zone they're in, we can generally get the start of the morning synced up and then they can work the rest of the day. I found over time, having anything a little bit afternoon is a no-go with the technical uh, teammates. And so um, I try not to have meetings back to back. That's really, really hard. And then a good portion of my day is reviewing stakeholder communication and what risk and issues I have open um, in the portfolio. And so for me right now, I carry three really big portfolios. Uh, so it's been very uh, systematic for me to check the forecast, see if the overnight integrations or upgrades went well, and then look at um, the stakeholder conversations. Uh, but a big portion of my role is the forecast. Are we meeting uh, the timeline and the dollars? A lot of people don't realize how that's associated. So I'm always checking with my guys. And, and I don't have any females this time on my on my project. My last one I did. But I always check, are you still going to do 40 hours this week? Are you still going to do 50 hours? Because it's, you know, those are billable. And, and in the bigger sense of my PL, if it's off, my variance has to be so minimal because you get slapped on the hand. If it's too high, you come in and you make more than we forecasted. And you get slapped on the hand if it's too low. Because 
you have your own business. So my typical day is what's going on in my company. So I see each project as my own individual company. Um, and there's a couple that get a little more attention than the others just because um, they're just really uh, sensitive to the economy um, and to the population they serve. So now my, my typical day is a little more structured because I'm out of of the pandemic uh, scurry that we were in with one of our major clients that was all the testing centers in the U.S. And that that was a different look. So I know most, oh, go ahead, Jenny. I think I still don't quite understand what you do. So maybe you could go to another okay. level of what the kind of projects it is that you're, I'm assuming that you're coordinating a project plan, right? You have a budget and that's where the hours come in and blah, blah, blah. But what exactly is the team that you're working with and what are, what are they trying to accomplish? Perfect. So this is a really good one. So, um, and I'm able to talk about this one openly because where they're at, Price Waters, PWC. They announced last month that they are going 100% remote, right? So I've had this portfolio since Q1, uh, March or April. Well, we were brought on to refresh their devices and get them out to the employees who are remote and to the new hire summer interns, right? So I'm responsible for working with the client on the services delivery. So after our sales team sells all the services and all the hardware, and I come in and map out the timeline, the budget, the risk, the constraints, who the team will be, and how we'll really execute the style that they wrote out, right? So they come in, good to go, summer interns, went well. We had a third-party team who did all of the on-site refreshes of the devices, making sure they were up to part, Windows 10. You know, we have a third-party vendor I have to manage who picks up all the devices another third party who has to drop off all the box supplies, right? So there's all this coordinating and I have a PM and a PC, but I'm responsible for making sure that all the pieces of the puzzle are together and stay on time, right? And within budget. Well, we wrapped it up really well. And they're like, oh, by the way, you did so great. We want you to do another 3000 devices. Okay, and we get paid per device. So really big win for us kept working, repeated that. And then PwC announced everyone's remote. I remember picking up the phone, calling the senior VP. I was like, that's going to impact our project today because we were running a refresh, redeploy. We never had the population of who would never come back. Right. We right. knew the population who was coming back wasn't in our count, right? So I was like, okay, we need a meeting immediately. And I remember when the PMs was like, well, we haven't gotten the contract. I'm like, we're going to get the contract. I'm running this project. I'm telling you, we need to start planning it now. That was uh, August. Since then, we have had four additional sales. I just got a war for something. We knew the contract for $4 million because what happened is everyone now is going to be refreshing remotely. Everyone now is going to be redeployable. So what does it look like now? Okay, Sherelle has to work with the PwC client, the sales team, and the delivery team and say, how do we now refresh all the PCs, not impact their work productivity, make sure all of our third-party vendors are covered under COIs, access to buildings that PwC doesn't own. Oh, and by the way, PwC said everybody has to be vaccinated. So then I had to go through the list and say, okay, who's not staying on? I lost 32 resources like that. Wow. wow. Like, just like that. 32 resources. They're like, yep, no vaccine, no vaccine, no vaccine. I was like, okay. So we had some buffer, you know, because I knew ahead. I was like, if they're letting everyone work remote, this entire portfolio is going to change. So when people say, you know, well, explain to me, what do you do? I really have to execute what's been sold in the sow with the resources and the time and Sal. the money yeah. that we have. I was going to say, you're throwing out a lot of, I'm sorry. You, yeah, you, that's a P, PMP is no acronyms. Oh, sorry, a contract, <laughs> Just your simple contract, your, your um statement of work, you know? So if, if you come to me and you say, I have $20, I need you to install the computer at my desk, I'm responsible for checking that 
and making sure the 20 hour level of effort was really mm-hmm. accurate because I can look and say, ooh, we're gonna need 30 hours. Jenny is not gonna be happy about me saying, I need a little more money because we need more time because your rationale would say, you're the subject matter expert. You didn't know that when you scoped this, how, how are we here? And so it's you know managing that, but I'm services. And so the sales team, they work with another group to create styles and contracts. I used to do that. So by the time I receive it, it's already been signed. So I'm notorious for combing through and I will red flag like, this is, this is off, this is off, we're gonna move. They're like, sure, I'll just, just drive it. So I'm really good at getting additional pipeline. That mm-hmm. is my niche, uh, millions, I'm proud of that, millions of dollars, but it's a lot of work because you have to rationalize to the client how do we get here, you know? And, mm-hmm. and that's that's always a conversation that's interesting. <laughs> Does that help? Yes. Because I feel, yes. Okay, I'm gonna simplify yes. when I explain that to people. So Sherelle, you know, we talked a little bit about this earlier in your origin story, but do you have any additional advice for people who want to do something similar to to you in, in any parts of your journey or kind of where you are today? What would be your advice to them? First of all, um, definitely have a mentor. Um, you have to have someone who's going to give you feedback, <laughs> who's going to listen intently and, and be honest with you. Um, and really allow you to bounce things off of them. Uh, the second is to identify a sponsor. And, and I should say that doesn't always come easily because a sponsor is usually someone much more senior, but who has a vested interest in your success. They will put skin in the game um, for you. And, and I've been blessed. Um, I have two amazing sponsors. And um, a, a good sponsor will even tell you when it's time to pivot, you know, and, and look other places, other arenas, other areas. Uh, but they will always um, make room for you at the table or encourage you to create a table if one's not there. Um, so that's really important. Um, education. Education, by I mean, by being relevant. Like in this IT, this tech world, it's busy. It can get noisy. There's a lot going on. It's constantly changing. But if you know um, what you want to do, sometimes that makes it easier with the education certifications or formal education, what path you want to go down. And if you're still trying to kind of fill your way, I would suggest um, there are a couple of organizations, but uh, Blacks in Technology, and you do not have to be Black to join, but I'm a big endorser and supporter of BITS. Uh, the founder, Greg Greenlee, he is my teammate and um, he's done an amazing job. Um, chapters all over the world now. So that's a really great way. Um, and then there's a couple of other associations with women in technology. Um, and then they're popping up everywhere. But I think that's another way to really educate yourself because they bring programs to a lot of the members and it gives you a really good pathway. Like BIT, I've gotten sponsored from Google, from Intel to take certifications, and they're free. Like they're backed and paid by the partners, but the members get to access all this education and search for free. And to be a member, it's free, right? So, um, and, and surround yourself with those who are doing what you want to do. And I think that's been a really uh, big piece for me. And Sierra knows me. I, I have never been afraid to ask anyone anything. You know, I walked up to my CEO five years ago. Why isn't there a women's group here? Why, why don't we have a women's TRG group? He was like, you know, um, I'm sorry, your name again? I'm like, Sherelle Nicole Francis, <laughs> I'm from Jersey. Um, like, you know, there's a lot I could say about this conference we're in. I am the only tech female of color here. And we're up here talking about how diverse we are. I'm like, I'm really conflicted. That has led into an amazing, unique relationship. And I worked in the background with my CEO for years. And he brought to the public forefront that I work with him in the background. Because I, I, um, you cherish those relationships of sponsorship at that level. And not because they're above us or better, 
but they have something to offer us. And so you, you want to cherish it. And so you have to be okay with speaking to those at any level. But I will say for as talkative and as engaging and social as I'm, I am, when I'm in certain rooms, I'm often the last to speak. So I would leave with anyone. My grandfather always said, he who asks the questions leads the conversation. And I ask a lot of questions after I've heard the rounds of the room, right? <laughs> so so that, that has helped me. So don't be afraid to ask questions because it will lead you into some amazing places. Like when I really look back at what I've done, like it's amazing. And I, I have a lot that I'm still aspiring for, but I have never been afraid to ask. So very simple, a mentor, a sponsor, relevant education, and ask questions after listening intently. That's what I would suggest. Yeah, sponsorship is a, a big piece that I think I learned pretty late. And that's something I tell people now too, because I lead a team and I say, you know, I know you're great, but you need to make sure some other people know right. this as well, because, you know, I'm just the first line. Someone else, you know, other people need to understand what you've done and be able to advocate um, for the career path that you want. So um, that's a big piece of having a successful career. I'm gonna plug Matthew again for his, um, his prose talk that he's going to be giving in December about asking better questions. Um, I'm terrible at asking questions. Um, so I'm very interested in his, his talk. And I'm, we talked also about me being a wallflower, but I'm coming out of my shell um, a lot more and a lot of people know who I am. So I get forced to talk often. <laughs> so Sherelle, what programs would you suggest or, you know, initiatives that, that companies should, should undertake to increase black talent in technology? So this is my baby. This is my love. You know, after Zoe Isabel, Lily Francis, um, you know, this is this is my world. Um, first and foremost, if recruitment retention is not a part of the mission statement for any company PRG, especially of color, it's all these communities, then I would be very paused. So the first thing I would say is make sure that's in your mission statement. And it is for pros. So that's great. So from a program perspective, and I mentioned this earlier, um, I think sometimes companies are sensitive to using the word task. So you can find whatever synonym, etymology you want to use. But a task force, a task force has an objective. They're held accountable to identifying the problem, putting quantifiable measures around it setting goals and accountability. Uh, one of the things that uh, really worked well for me with my uh, current CEO, uh, Ken Lamnek, is that I am data obsessed. So when I scheduled to meet with him, I knew it was a 30 minute meeting. I'm like, I'm gonna do 18 minutes max, so we can have some room to go back and forth. I presented data. So companies need to look at programs that really are based on having a task force, however they want to name it, this is what I would suggest, so that there's some accountability. We have to be patient because the needle doesn't move fast, but you can have actionable results quick if you're really focused. I would um, encourage companies to immerse themselves in the communities where the talent resides. I often notice that companies want the talent to come to them. And now we're in this, you know, little bit hybrid, not complete hybrid of a world. And so we have to immerse ourselves with the talent. So we have to go to the schools, be it virtually. We have to reach out to the organizations and I think make ourselves um, prominent to them. Like, you know, you, I remember you would go to a, a college fair, college day. EY was there. You knew the EY team because they showed up at certain campuses and you weren't even thinking about a different employer. Um, I can say about pros. Pros is very active in their recruitment and their internship programs. You know, I tried to talk to my hard-headed nephew, like, hey, pay attention. So programs where 
you can immerse yourselves in that community. Partnerships, right? I mean, this is a technology company. You guys get it. I think if we think more partner alliances, not just for the GP and bottom line, but um, I think if we looked at TRGs and said, okay, how can we make successful partner alliances? That's a real way that I think companies can build better programs without always reinventing the wheel. And then you have resources who are already interested. You're not always soliciting because that's their area of interest. So partnerships, task force, and immersing themselves where the talent is actually um, in community. I love that. Um, the partnerships yeah. is one thing that I, I don't think that we're heavily doing, but we just recently got a new head of talent and he's doing a lot of work right now to really um, laser focus in on diversity recruiting. So we're excited about all the things that he's going to be doing um, in that space. So with that, we're at the heat check for this week's episode. Heat check, heat check, heat check, heat check. <laughs> so Sherelle is our guest today. Um, would you like to share your heat check? So heat check is, you know, something um, that you found in, in you know, the news or something exciting in the tech world that you want to share with our audience? Ooh, I was torn between two things. Uh, I think it's pretty, pretty, pretty insane that we are still hearing about a pipeline problem with Black talent. I have to say it. That's my heat check. I mean, I wanted to bring something fun. I was thinking about NFT. You can purchase art. Paris Hilton just bought like this art. She did her dog, her chihuahua. It's worth $2 million. And you could do it with cryptocurrency. No, let me, let me, this is who I am. We are still hearing quotes about a pipeline issue. The heat check for me is who is believing the lie? The talent is abundant. The talent is overflowing. And if we just look at HBCUs alone have received nearly $350 million in grants for outdoor wireless programs. I'm in infrastructure. What does that mean? A company like myself, Insight, we can go to HBCUs, especially those in rural areas, ensure that their infrastructure, their Wi-Fi, their internet, their services is up to par and they not have to pay a dime. So just that alone is exciting. And how does this correlate? There's no pipeline problem. We have staff, we have students, we have interns who can come and be a part of a program as such. So the heat check for me is stop talking about a pipeline problem. I think what we have is actually um, a resource problem with people dedicating time to actually seek out the talent. Like you said, the, you got to go to where the talent is, not expect the talent to come to you. Come to you. Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, systemically, have, have we created a construct that's been always inviting? Hello. Hello. Right. So... I'll stop there. You might have to edit all that out. You guys can. No, we don't. No, no, no. We don't edit here. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's draw. Yeah, I mean so I I, I couldn't believe there's another article just put out um October 18th. I'm like, and I'm looking at Wired, and I was just like, there's so much money. Uh, but those of us in these places that have the opportunities, I think it's important for us to build a relationship and to be the bridge, because yeah. someone down at Miles College may not know that they are entitled to $1.2 million worth of infrastructure built. They may hear that and say, we don't have anyone here to do it. You don't need anyone. You're entitled to it. And a part of that contract, you sparks out all the resources and the third party that you need so they can come and deploy this so that then you can be an institute that can proudly say, we're modern, we're up to date, we can provide such and such and such and become attractive. Uh, so I, I, it's still amazing to me, and I hope under this administration, this is not political. It's just that 
those who have made the funds available through legislation, I hope that it's publicized strategically enough and how to access it so that educators and administrators don't feel it's out of their reach or buried down in bureaucracy that they can't deliver to student population. Beautiful. Who wants to go next? <laughs> I can go if neither one of you want to go. Go ahead, Sarah. <laughs> so my heat check this week is, um, I've, I don't know if you all have seen, but Will Smith is coming out with, uh, he's releasing a, a book. I don't, I don't know if we want to call it an autobiography or what have you, but he and his wife have been in the news recently with <laughs> a lot of, you know, revealing things about their relationship and their lives. And the most recent headline was him, you know, promoting his book and him talking about this book will reveal who the real Will Smith is. And, you know, celebrities from the 90s, when you think about Will Smith and the Tom Cruises and the Tom Hanks and all those types of people, there was always this mystique about them, you know, you didn't really know a lot about their personal lives and this, that, and the other. And I think <clears throat> even for someone on Will Smith's level, who's, I mean, multimillionaire, a mogul in a sense, is still basically code switching out in the world. And that's not something that we've really talked about on the podcast, but I'm interested in you know, this push by, for diversity in the workplace and being able to bring your whole selves to work, do you still find yourself code switching and not really being fully yourself when you're at work, even with, you know, the talk about being authentic and we want to really know who you are and that cliche of bringing your whole self to work? Yeah. You still put on a persona? Well, we, we talk about our other personas because we're all introverts here, uh, us hosts. So, so there's levels, right? So there's, there's definitely my, okay, I can't be in the corner or I want to be Jenny and I want to be productive and I have a team to lead and I have to lead by example or I have to advocate. So there's that level where sometimes I'm like, uh, I don't have the energy to do this today. But also, I'm always in fear of being a loud black woman because my personality is pretty, it's usually pretty like, what's going on? Blah, blah. And I remember even having conversations with my manager at the time, kind of like, uh, I think maybe I was a little on top. You know, I don't want people thinking that I'm too emotional about things. Uh, or, you know, I, I, you know, I do really care, but I want to make sure that I care in a professional way. And he kind of had to kind of tell me, well, no, I think you're being authentic to yourself. He did kind of support me in that, but I, it's still kind of always in the back of my head that I, I, I need to, um, you know, give my day job version of that authentic self. So that, that's always there. What about you, Maddie? What about you, Maddie? Um, work-wise, I'm like, we've, we mentioned before, I'm kind of like the sit back and not really put myself out there, but I can speak to like trying to get a job and like interviewing and cause I have tattoos. That was something that I would cover up and not just because, um, like a tattoo is a thing, but just more of like the perception of what I, what I was projecting really of like what they might perceive as me like being black and having tattoos um, and also just like messy hair. It's just the, those little things that I think um, like when you, when you take them individually, it's, it's not that big of a deal, but like as a person, like thinking of having to think of those things through and not just because it's like, Oh, this is bad, but it's just like, Oh, like my hair doesn't naturally fall while I have to do something with it, you know? And so just having to like really put like thought into that stuff, it it's not really like a good feeling. What about you, Sherelle? Um, the cold switching was always a little trivial for me because 
you, I mean, Sierra, you know me. I, I'd rather be quiet than switch. But um, my, my grandfather you know, raised me. Um, he always told me to know the room I'm in. So I'm, I'm really cognizant and I had to like take inventory. I'm like, maybe that was code switching. We just didn't know that was the terminology. Yeah. And so like when I look back, I'm like, I, I do it and I do it very well. I do it very well. But um, as I've gotten older, one of the things I don't do is um, mute myself. Right. It's like I won't solicit, but I won't mute myself. So that's why, especially um, in certain rooms, um, doing some strategical planning and road mapping with the C-suite, I made a point not to solicit because I was not going to mute myself. So that's kind of been my way to counter code switching because it is exhausting. And I think you lose yourself somewhere in there. It is absolutely exhausting. Um, and I, I do not I do not have the energy anymore. Um, very unapologetic. And and I did it more often than I realized. But my counsel was, oh, look professional, wear the best, be this and that, but you're not gonna lose your opinion. And in mind hindsight, I was like, I was code switching, but no, I, I just I always say, are you asking me or am I here to listen? Because then you know those are two totally different. <laughs> Some of my peers know. Yes, want you to listen. I'm like, okay, I'm gonna be your sounding board, and that that helps me avoid to have to do that. Um, that that's in my counter. Didn't come overnight. I think for myself. <laughs> I definitely used to mute myself. I would always have an opinion, but I I would always fear it's going to be too harsh. It's not going to come out the right way. I've even gotten feedback that, you know, when you speak up in a conversation, one, everybody shut up and listens. And second, it can come off, you know, really brash because I don't do fluff very well and when I do give my opinion it's very straightforward and unapologetic um, but I think that's also the more and more that I speak up it has helped it's benefit me in so many ways because a lot of people may not be thinking about something in the way that I am or I am a part of you know, I can fill in the gap for their blind spot for something that they weren't thinking about. And so that's encouraged me to show up. And sometimes I'm just too tired to put on a face. I got too much going on. You're going to get it. How I'm never going to, you know, intentionally be rude. And I'm always, you know, I've said something wrong or I offended you. I apologize, but I also meant what I said, <laughs> you know, and I think it also comes with age. And as you get further into your career, um, it becomes a little bit easier to be more of yourself um, in these, in these, you know, conversations in these rooms. But I also think that this generation coming behind us are not going to struggle with it as much as we did. Nope. I, nope. I, no, we we just had that conversation, Sierra. I, we just had that conversation with our executive sponsor yesterday. We were like, there's a whole army yes, yes. coming behind mm -hmm. us. And it matters to them about what matters to the company, where we put our money, where we align our value system. Um, they are holding us accountable in a different way. And they are not taking excuses. They're not crazy about going into debt to live the American dream. So their whole path is like non-traditional. A lot of us work because we have bills. Mm -hmm. That is not what's coming behind <laughs> us. It, it, it's a different, um, oh, it was the CDO at a criminal hard rock. That's who it was. And she was saying the baby boomers are starting to retire. And the Z's and the X are coming to executive positions. We're going to see more compassionate leadership, but probably higher turnover. Yeah. Because if it's not fit, all right. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, Sherelle, 
thank you so much for taking time to come and chat thank with you. us in our audience this week. So we don't get to do any chat? Thank yeah, you. what the heck's here? <laughs> <laughs> we got, I got caught up. I got caught up. My bad. Yours was very good. And I feel Because I was like, it's not my show, but okay. that one. Because you're, I think that was a really good conversation. Mine is not. That Jenny is going to fire me from lead hosting <laughs> duties. But I still, yeah, I still like a chance to. I apologize. I would, Jenny I would love to hear or Matthew, Matthew, please come with your heat check. You want to do rock, paper, scissors for the next one? Yeah, let's do it. Uh, oh, so does it mean I go first or yeah. I go last? Oh, you get to pick. You get to pick because you won. So you get to pick. All right, I'll go first. Um, okay. You guys use Instagram? Yes. Okay, I don't yes. use Instagram. I'm just going to continue to bring that up that I don't use social media. But I read that they're doing a take a break from Instagram. It's an opt-in opt -in system. And it's currently, if you're in the test phase, that you get to use this. And so you set specific time intervals of like 10, 20 minutes or 30 minutes. And then a notification will like pop up. And I guess it suggests several ways for you to like not use Instagram. So like take a few breaths, write down what you're thinking, listen to your favorite song or do something on your to-do list, which I like. Um, and then apparently it's going to be more widely available in December. I'm on the bandwagon that it's part of Meta's rebrand themselves, but I still mm -hmm. think it's a really good idea. Yeah, I'm not on Instagram all the time, so I don't really need a break from it. Instagram but, is my social media drug of choice. No, I think if if there's a TikTok, that's the one I get sucked into because you can't exit out of it. You you hit that back button and they're like, here's another video. Here's another video. Here's another video. And like 30 minutes later, you're like, am I still looking at TikTok? <laughs> so they definitely need a feature that helps me disconnect. Um, but I think a lot of people do use Instagram all the time too, so I'm sure that might help them. Doom scrolling. Doom scrolling. Yes. Did you yeah. introduce us to that That's term be before, Maddie? No. I'm just gonna claim that I okay. did. Yes. We'll take it. <laughs> yeah. I don't. I don't know. This whole. I. I still struggle internally because of all the data. I'm big into data. And I just have a problem with how much of my life they have access to, proprietary rights to, and I am still struggling in a really big way with that. So even with my own website, everything, I'm trying to get everything, all my traffic just channeled to my website and I'm building my own app so that I can step away from that as much as possible so that what is on my gram on Facebook is really non, not a non-issue for me. No, I don't have another way to say it right now. So to hear that they're doing the take a pause, to me, it's like their counter of don't go to the Calm app, don't go to these. What, what, like it's another dynamic of them almost controlling the facets of your life. Because now you're like this pseudo cerebrum Calm app. Like, really, you're telling me when to stop being on here now, too, and the clock to come back? Like, uh, it's all data-driven, and it's, it's, it's just really interesting. It makes me feel like, remember 1984, Big Brother's watching? Like, I just have those moments with that stuff. Big Brother's definitely watching and listening. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Well, I'll do mine real quick. Um, this is a... Well, take your time. <laughs> This is a, um, a D-Zone article entitled, What Do Engineers Really Think About Technical Debt? So if you think about technical debt, it's some aspect of the code you're working on which is inefficient. And you know it's inefficient, but you don't have time to go um, make it better because you're too busy working on the new thing. So think about... I'm painting my house and all I have is one paintbrush. I don't have a... I know there's an invention out there that's a roller that, that'll make it go faster, but I just don't have time to go to roller. So I'm painting my whole house with this paintbrush and that's frustrating. Uh, so that's what this article is talking about. Um, and with the, you know, everyone's talking about the great resignation, you know, people are like, you know, I'm, you know, you know, there's just basically a lot of movement going on. Um, 
you know, in the positions now. And so I, I guess this is just kind of saying this could be one of the reasons um, people are leaving because they're saying 52% of engineers believe that technical debt negatively impacts the team morale. So, so to the point where it's like, you know, all I have is a paintbrush and I know, you know, there's better ways to do this, but I never get the chance to do that. And it's impacting me personally and in my mood. So the way to fix it is, you know, maybe I need to find something else to do. So I think that's something to be aware of. Um, I know we try to, and, and different companies combat this in different ways. The article is saying um, you can either just kind of say, I'm going to dedicate the next, if you're in an agile cycle, right, I'm going to ded dedicate the next two sprints or something to just tackling tech debt. So it's, we're doing something about it. Um, I, what I've seen is that it's not really, um, doesn't really work out the way you want it to. You kind of have to tie in, okay, you want these new features. Before we can go do those new features, we've got to clean these things up and kind of make it part of, when you talk about a project plan, right? Um, from the development side, you know, we have an execution plan to deliver um, features. So we put time in to say, okay, well, if this feature, you know, the actual bits about the feature, the, the requirements that you want might take four weeks, but we need another week to, you know, fix this other thing so that everything will be easier to manage going forward and, and building that in. And I think that's probably the better way to do it. And if you have, um, you know, I've got an architect on my team and I have tech leads on my team that will tell me they're like, you know, this part needs work, please, before we do this, can we build in time to do that? And I'm always listening to them to try and build that in whenever we can. So um, if tech debt is an issue on any of your teams, please, you know, take some time and chip, you know, it, it, you know, you can't boil the ocean, but you, you can, can, you know, tackle, you can figure out the things that are kind of higher priority and build that in for, in your roadmap or your project plan. I think that's good advice just across organizations, period. Any team that you're on before you take on this big, huge initiative, you know, make sure that you're taking the time to clean up what needs to be cleaned up before adding more adding, dirt onto the pile. Adding the mess, yeah. I was talking about my son wanted me to put the Christmas tree out. <laughs> yes. And I was yeah. like, I know that to do that, I got to undo a lot of stuff. So it's like, I'm not ready for that. I got to <laughs> hit the house here before I pull out the Christmas tree. Oh, that's really good. I, I, um, if you can, send me, send me that article because I'm dealing with some stuff with um, my Azure stack team and they're not using the Agile or scrum methodology, but we have a part of our practice that does, and I work really close. Actually, my co-chair of the API, Afro Professionals, um, um, ERG, and that would be interesting to have that conversation because I hear frustration a lot. I work with a lot of the senior architects, and I'll be like, who scoped this? This is, and I'm like, I know you want to fix it like in totality, but you know, this part of practice is still delivering waterfall. My other group, we deliver, you know, scrum and we have our sprints and standards. But just the mere frustration, and then there's a couple of people that, you know, and over time you don't see them, and you realize, uh oh, oh, not here. oh, not, you know, kind of start thinking and wondering, because um, you get that feedback, and at certain levels, especially with my architects, that they're like, sure, who scoped this? I'm like, first of all, you know, I didn't. This next because you are bitter. But because it's that risk reward, you know, like, okay, really? Like, is this, this is not, I'd rather go to the client and say, you know what, misstep, when the course correct, and results will be much better. That's the beauty of sprints and, and the scrum methodology. With waterfall, are we going over budget yet? Are we going to be on time? And you're not, all that other stuff. So that's a really good article. And, and, but it has impacted the great resume. Yeah, yeah. All right, now I can wrap up the episode. My sincere apologies to my co-host. My bad. So, Sherelle, tell people where they can find you um, out in on the interwebs if they want to connect with you. Yes, so um, I do have my own website. It's my namesake, SherelleFrancis.com. Uh, of course, LinkedIn. And then I am on IG and I am in Clubhouse. Now, I don't 
tote around there a lot is very specific. Uh, there's one really nice um, group of ladies I'm with, and then I'm in there for the Black Think Tank, if you ever heard of them. So you can definitely find me on Clubhouse, but um, that's a group that I think if you get a chance to check out, um, Richard Olson's done an amazing job. Um, but those are my ways to best reach me. Uh, LinkedIn and my website um, is definitely for speaking engagements, DEI platforms and others of sort. And I'm on Twitter. Um, I don't tweet as often or as much, but when I do, it's for a purpose. So I would say follow me on Twitter. Um, that's it. That's my world. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you guys Thanks for, for having so much for joining us. Yes. And to our listeners, um, we hope that you go out and continue the conversation that we started here and we will see you next week bye bye, bye. thank you bye. we're waiting <laughs> we're waiting <laughs>